So today we talk about prioritize well. Well, taking a test, a student was asked to list the Ten Commandments in any order. And he wrote, three, six, one, eight. So this morning we embark on a new summer message series studying the Ten Commandments. And I've been, been asked, are we going to have a message on all ten of them? And I said, no, we're just going to pick our top seven favorites. That's, that's not how it works. So we will be studying all ten. So, yeah. So written over 3,500 years ago, recorded by Moses, these commandments became the, the foundation for morality and civilization. And the, the first four commandments, as, as you look at them, they teach reverence for God. And then commandments 5 through 10 teach respect for others. And they're so timely right now to the, the world in which we're living and where we study today, this first commandment is, is actually the foundational bedrock of, of all life decisions. We are told to have no other gods ahead of the one true God. First things first. God comes first. And this is the cornerstone command. Unless we commit to this, it doesn't matter what God says about stealing or adultery or, or lying, etc., we have to submit to his sovereign right to rule in our lives. That's the first thing. So commandment number one is, is both our first duty and it's our greatest challenge. It, it delineates that God doesn't want to have an important place in our lives. He wants to be first place in our lives. And so there are distractions to that proper priority. And I think there have been some misrepresentations of the Ten Commandments. Many people perceive the Ten Commandments as a means of getting God's attention, seeking God's approval, finding God's affection. And there seems to be a sentiment that if I just live that perfect 10 life, I will deserve to go to heaven. And that approach is completely missing the point. We don't obey God to gain his approval so that he might start to love us. Instead, God already loves each of us. And we obey him because he has already granted us his favor. And we want to express our appreciation. To fully grasp this, we need to go back into the context of Exodus chapter 19, the chapter prior to when Moses received the Ten Commandments. And when they were given to Israel, God outlined his love and affection for his people. The Ten Commandments weren't intended to be a big do and don't list as much as a loving father speaking into the lives of his children. You may have heard the familiar adage that reminds rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Let me give you an example. If, if I have a dog and he leaves my yard, he doesn't cease belonging to me. He's still mine, still my dog. And likewise, I don't put up a fence for the neighbor's dog. 
I, I put up a fence because I care about the safety and welfare of my dog that belongs to me. My fictitious dog, I, I might add, right here. Don't have a dog at this moment in time. So God had already established that the Israelites were his people. He was their God. And so these guidelines were not a prerequisite to gain his approval. They were given as a result of this relationship with God. So I want us to rethink the reason behind the Ten Commandments, why God gave these directives. Andy Stanley points out that the Ten Commandments are not a condition of a relationship with God. They are a confirmation of a relationship with God. It's not a matter of if I obey all 10 of the 10 commandments, then God will love me. The point is he already loves you. And he's given us these guidelines because he loves us and because we belong to him. I want you to think of the 10 commandments as being a love letter a tender, heartfelt message from the very hand of God. And, and I've become convinced that it's one of the most powerful expressions of God's love in, in all of Scripture. And, and it's all right there. He, he doesn't leave anything out. These ten statements are an all-encompassing focus on virtually every area of our lives. They provide parameters to live by matters of life and death, the, the truths that are, are going to provide blessing and strength, hope and future. And some people view the Ten Commandments as just the opposite. Instead of this love letter from a father who cares, they don't hear the love in the statements. They hear the, the clank of chains. They hear the rattle of padlocks. And that's playing right into Satan's plan He's the one from the beginning who's tried to portray God as a prude, as a, a killjoy, as a harsh old grandfather with a long gray beard and bushy eyebrows who doesn't want anyone to have any fun ever. That's not a very original line of reasoning. Our enemy began using that on Eve all the way back at the dawn of creation in the Garden of Eden. You remember when he tried to get her to, to eat? Of the, the fruit. Has God really forbidden you from this lovely fruit? Oh, what a pity. I, I, I can't believe it. What a shame. He knows that if you ever tasted from this tree, you'd be like a God. And so if that happens, nothing will hold you back. And you think the Garden of Eden is nice now. You've seen nothing yet. God wants to suppress you. He doesn't want you to enjoy the tang and the sweetness of life. And real freedom means you're not confined to these rules and restrictions. That, that's what Satan sold our, our first parents, and he's still using that same line of reasoning today. The Ten Commandments, they're harsh. They're negative. They're, they're narrow. They're legalistic. They're cold. They're confining. But I want you to discover in, in this historical context that or anything but that. You remember what had just happened a few months before the Ten Commandments were given? God had emancipated the Israelites where they had been slaves in Egypt for the last 400 years. 
And in his miraculous display of shock and awe of the ten plagues, God used Moses to, as Charlton Heston would say, set my people free. And so they were liberated from this tyranny of the Egyptian slave masters. Did you know there was a prior conversation between the Lord and Moses before God gave him the, the tablets of stone? Did you know that, that God gave Moses specific instructions about what to say to people before presenting the Ten Commandments? It was God himself who set this context, and it's all right here in the book of Exodus. And Satan would rather we never learn about those prior instructions because it doesn't fit the narrative of him quoting God out of context. He always has. And if he can't persuade you to stay away from the Bible, then he'll try to wrench God's words out of the rightful settings. And so the rightful setting for the Ten Commandments is the boundless love of a father who cares so much for his children. You, you can hear that beating in these words from Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and, and brought you to yourself. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God's saying, do you remember when you were trapped in Egypt and you had no place to go? You were in bondage. You were in trouble. Do you remember how you groaned in your captivity because of your oppression, the terrible cruelty of your Egyptian taskmasters? Do you remember looking at your precious children, realizing they had no hope or future beyond chains, a lash, and an early death? And I heard your cries. I saw your tears. I came down to buy you back out of your slavery. Do you remember my children? And when we can look back on the same thing in our own lives, we remember what God has done for us, his deliverance in our case. And everything we have, everything we enjoy, it's because of him. All the blessings we encounter are from him. There is nothing between us and an eternal abyss, but empty space and a, a long way to fall. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2.12, we were without hope and without God in the world. And yet God delivered us, and he wants to spare us from suffering in hell if we'll heed his, his wisdom and advice, these directives. Uh, emails are a great technology, but it's something we remember can, can go off the tracks and go awry, sometimes unintentionally with serious or humorous consequences. Consider the, the case of the Illinois man who left the snow-filled streets of Chicago to vacation in Florida. 
His wife was on a business trip, was planning to meet him there the next day. And when he got to his hotel, he decided to send his wife a quick email. And so, unable to find a scrap of paper on which he had written her email address, he did his best to type it from memory. And unfortunately, he missed one letter. And his note was instead directed to an elderly minister's wife whose husband just the day before had passed. When the grieving widow checked her email, she took one long look at the monitor, let out a piercing scream, fainted, and and fell to the floor. At the sound, uh, the family rushed into the room and, and saw these words displayed on the screen. Dearest wife, just checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. P.S. Sure is hot down here. That's what can happen when technology goes awry. Our Father gave us these 10 timeless truths so that we could avoid, as Jude 23 says, the, the flames of hell. He commands, snatch others from the fire and save them. And the greatest challenge I face every day of my life is probably the very same challenge that you face every day. And that's maintaining a close, personal, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It's keeping him first. Number one, that's our task to make sure that no other God, no other person, no other object, no other task, no other duty, no other pleasure comes before him in our priorities in our plans, in our affection. And God spoke, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God's not stating that other false gods did not exist, but he's stating that I'm your only choice. The Old Testament makes it clear that in the the world of ancient Israel that many pagan gods were vying for Israel's allegiance. And God is saying, of all those things which call for your loyalty, I am your God. The only real freedom a person has is to choose his or her gods, little g. After that, our gods determine what we are going to be. And so God has done the same for each of us as Christians. What was your Egypt? What was your habit that shackled and and enslaved you previously? Do you ever get distracted from what is truly important? What is right before us? What is at hand? and, And get pulled off onto a peripheral concern. Years ago, when Johnny was delivering our, our first child, we were at Christ Hospital, and, and she was having a kind of a long delivery, and she said, I, my, my epidural's wearing off. I, I need another shot. Could you please go, go find the nurse or the doctor and, and, and get me some more meds? I said, absolutely. So, I walked down the, the hall in search of trying to find the nurse, and under my arm, I had, had brought a, 
an Arabian horse magazine to look at there while at the hospital. And so I found a nurse and I said, hey, excuse me, uh, I, I need your help for a moment. And she spotted the magazine in my hand. She said, is that an Arabian magazine? I go, well, yes, it is. She said, uh, I, I used to be married to Jim Clinton. And Jim had been a, a prominent Ohio professional trainer. And she goes, could I look at your magazine for a minute? I said, sure. So handed over the magazine. She began thumbing through it and viewing the pictures with an awakened interest. And then she started asking questions. And we're talking away. And then the doctor walks up. And uh, then the nurse mentioned, well, the doctor has a farm too. And he, he, he raises cattle. And so he started joining into this conversation about animal husbandry. And after a few minutes of energetic dialogue, the, the doctor said, were you needing something? I said, oh yeah, my wife's in serious pain. She needs another epidural as quickly as possible. When I returned to the room, Johnny quizzed, what took so long? And I had to tell her the truth about getting distracted. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, in the years that have followed, I've made some progress on my sensitivity spectrum to my spouse. And, and I, right now, all the ladies in the sound of my voice are thinking, well, I'm, I guess so. You only had one direction to go, and that was up. So. <laughs> but do you ever get distracted by inconsequential pursuits of the moment that you allow to overshadow the eternal pursuits that really matter? There are numerous distractions looming to pull us off course. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, Jesus described an individual whose faith was choked out by worry and riches and the responsibilities and pleasures of life. Those are the very things that can take our focus off of the Lord. That covers it. We can manage to let everything from worry during times of difficulty to wealth during times of prosperity crowd out our relationship with God. I love the, the story about the, the football game at Ohio State and the, the Horseshoe Stadium seats 105,000 people. And, and on a Saturday, people show up hours ahead of time to tailgate and turn it into an all-day affair. And, and the stadium is always sold out. and It's packed. There's not an empty seat. And the joke is that one day there was an empty seat, and they were watching to see what was going to happen. And again, someone didn't arrive late, and, and, and now it's in the second quarter, and, and, and no one's taken that seat. And so uh, the people asked the, the lady who was seated beside the empty seat, uh, excuse me, I'm not trying to be nosy or anything, but uh, who, who does that seat belong to? You know, is, do you know who holds the ticket on that? She goes, that seat belonged to my dear departed husband, Harold. They said, well, wow, c couldn't you have found a friend or a relative or someone to use the ticket? No, they're all at the funeral. It's possible to get distracted and, and get our priorities out of, out of balance. 
Do you remember when Peter was walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee? He was doing fine until he took his eyes off of Jesus, and that's when he started to fall. Is it possible for a Christian to walk away from the Lord and, and leave the faith? I think 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 indicates that it is. It describes an early church leader named Demas, of whom the apostle Paul stated, Demas loved this world and deserted me. Demas bailed on God, the early church, the apostle Paul. If we are to prioritize well, we must recognize and avoid the distractions to the proper priority. But let's also consider this morning the, the determinations for the proper priority. The Israelites had, had been exposed to pagan deities and, and idol worship there in Egypt. And, and so God made this his very primary command, uh, foundational, that God exclusively deserves our worship. The Living Bible paraphrases Proverbs 3, 6 like this. In everything you do, put God first, and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. You can say it in a variety of ways. Keep the main thing the main thing. Put the big rocks in first. You don't know what you're living for until you know what you're willing to die for. Prioritize well. Let me suggest living with this priority. Give God the first day of the week, the first thought in your plans, the first portion of your income, the first priority in your time, the first place in your heart. First things first. Put God first. God is saying, Please don't squander your life in those fleeting, temporary distractions that surround you. Don't turn to the world for satisfaction, fulfillment, and quick fix remedies for a wounded heart. Those things aren't going to bring blessing and prosperity to your life. They will turn to ashes in your hands and leave you even more empty and disappointed than before. What happens then when I make sure to put God first in my life? It changes destructive worry and anxiety patterns in my mind. Where I, I once became locked up with fear, I now have confidence. Therefore, it says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, I tell you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat or drink or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and let, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? Do you see the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. 
Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's a great verse. I write that on graduation cards, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those other incidental earthly concerns will fall into the right place. They'll be given to you as well. And then Jesus sums up this section from the Sermon on the Mount about worry by verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't borrow trouble. Uh, Don't pay for misery on the installment plan and, and worry in advance and during and after. He's saying, pray, turn it over to God, do what you can, but don't be consumed with worry. He's, he's saying, I, I'll take care of you. I love you more than the, the grass and flowers. I love you more than the birds. Uh, I, I've got this. Don't fret over things in life. Be sure to seek me first and then everything else will work out for the best. Author Ron Mel goes on to to conclude that worry is like a red warning light on the dashboard of our lives, informing us that we are not putting God first in our lives. What is it you're worrying about today? Everyone has a a concern, an anxiety, a, a worry. It's, it's alerting us. It's that red light on the dash that I've taken back some things from his care and I'm holding them. And, and that's foolish and that's dangerous to do. And so I like that quote, worry is like a red warning light on the dashboard informing us that we are not putting God first in our lives. First Peter 3.15 says to put God first. It says, but in your hearts, Set apart Christ as Lord, which is just another way of saying, keep him first. And really, when when you stop to think about it, why should we not want to put him first? He must become our first priority. General William Nelson, a Union general in the Civil War, was active in the battles fought in Kentucky. And during a brawl, he was shot in the chest. He had faced many battles on the battlefield, but this fatal blow came while he was relaxing with his men. He was caught fully unprepared. And as men ran up the stairs to him, the general had just one phrase. He said, send for a clergyman. I wish to be baptized. He never had time for God when he was a teen or a young man. He never had time for God as a private, later as a general. 
His wound did not stop or slow down the war. Everything around him was left virtually unchanged except for this general's priorities. With only a minute left before he entered eternity, the only thing he cared about was preparing for eternity. He wanted to be baptized. 30 minutes later, he was dead. It says in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. These words were penned by King David of Israel. He had discovered that the greatest feelings of fulfillment in life come when one is striving to please God. And this is so contrary to our hedonistic society that attempts to find fulfillment by indulging in pleasure. And this psalm teaches that by living a life of pleasing pleasure to God, his standards, you will gain what you desire most out of life. Put God first. Why should I ever want to put anyone or anything in front of him? Why should I tolerate other gods in my life? Why should I look for substitute saviors? Why should I serve lesser lords? He promised to provide for me everything I need. My life is completely changed, so why not tell the world what a mess I was in when he found me? Jesus came along. He took our shame. That's why we love him. That's the reason we can hold out hope. That's the reason we can say, put God first and he'll cover your past. God has forgiven you. He can forgive others. How could I not want to put such a God first? Would you pray with me?